We turn now to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Thus far, the reading of God's sacred word. Dear congregation, the book of Revelation we've often seen in recent months and last few years is really a tale of two cities, the earthly Babylon and the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 19 is a tale of two suppers that correspond to these two cities, two feasts. Last time in the first half of this chapter, we saw the wedding supper of the Lamb, a glorious feast. But here in the last half, verse 17 particularly, speaks of the supper of the great God. And as wonderful as the first supper was, the first banquet, so dreadful is this supper, this banquet. It's been compared to a horror film, only this horror film is real. And it is a most suitable, though solemn, subject to engage in as we commemorate the very last Sabbath of this year. And we think about how critical it is that as this year comes to an end, and our lives will soon come to an end, that we are prepared to meet the living God in righteousness and in peace. The truth of both suppers is that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst of them. He's the host of both of them. He's in charge of both. He says, well to the righteous and woe to the wicked. And so this morning we want to look with you at this great supper of God as the rider upon the white horse. The chapter, the portion of the chapter I read to you neatly divides itself into three sections. 
The first is the most lengthy. We'll spend uh, most of our time on that this morning. But all begin with the words, and I saw. So I want to just read now, though our text is verses 11 to 21, just read the first words of 11, 17, and 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse. Our theme then this morning is the king's victorious return. And we'll see first the king riding on a white horse, verses 11 through 16. Second, the king overseeing a dreadful supper, 17 and 18. And third, the king conquering in the final battle, 19 through 21. The king's victorious return, riding on a white horse, overseeing a dreadful supper, conquering in the final battle. Well, there's no doubt, is there, as to who the rider on the white horse is. We have an amazing description of him in verses 11 through 16. This is a triumphant description of a triumphant return, a victorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the names that are given to him, the titles he bears here, no one can deny this is the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, if you look with me, he's described as faithful and true. Verse 13, as the Word of God, which actually identifies him as God's active agent who, wherever he goes, carries God's character and God's will. He's the, he's the Logos, the, the Word of God. And then in verse 16, in poignant capital letters in the King James Version, he's described as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as if that's not enough, in verse 12... Something very wonderful is said about him, that he has another name, apart from all these names, which no one but he knows. And that, of course, reminds us of the fact that no matter how much we know about him, we know very little, and there's so much more about him that he knows about himself and the Father knows about him that we don't know. He's, he's too great and he's too glorious to be captured even in the 280 names that the Bible gives to him, each of which is a gift of revelation, each of which preaches the gospel. So really, he's beyond all names, though every name is a gift of God to us. He has a name that no one knows except himself. Now, every one of these names really merits a, a whole sermon, but we don't have time for that, of course. So I just want to make a comment or two about just one name, faithful and true, and then make some general principles about the names of God that might be helpful to you. The name faithful and true, it's, it's such a sweet name. It's written upon his sword, as it were, on his side. It's it makes us contemplate that Christ is faithful because he fulfills everything the Bible reveals of him and about him. And also, in that faithfulness, he personifies truth with a capital T. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now think back in 2013. If you're a believer, hasn't this been true for you personally? no matter what your trials have been? Have, hasn't your Savior, dear believer, always been faithful and true to you? Did he ever deceive you once in this year? Has he ever forgotten you? Even when you were downcast, hasn't he lifted you up? Hasn't he given you above what you deserved? Hasn't he been the very truth of God incarnate in your life? Hasn't he kept every promise he's made to you, fulfilled every word he's spoken? How sweet, you see, how rich are the names of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point I want to make with you this morning about these names. 
When we think about the names or titles of God, God is always using them in the Bible in terms of the context of the material he's speaking about. So just like if you're, if you're in a wonderful marriage and you have lots of little pet names for your spouse, and you pick out a particular special name for a particular context that relates particularly well, that develops a wonderful intimacy between you and your spouse. Well, that's what God does in his word with his names and his titles. They are matched to the context in which you find them. For example, when, when the apostle in the, in the Thessalonians prays for the people, he prays like this, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. You see, he wants the Thessalonians to have peace, so he addresses his prayer to the God of peace. Or when Jesus wants his people to be sanctified, he, call, he calls out, Holy Father, Holy Father, sanctify them, make them holy. Well, that's what is being done with all these names here in the picture, in the context of the judgment day, of the glorious return of Christ. It's the picture here of nations and rulers and kings who have defied Christ and his word, and they will be judged. And so the names that are picked show that he has a right to judge the nations. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming to a world that has ignored him, to a world that is guilty in its ignorance, to a world that worships an unknown God. And there's no excuse for that world because the one who's coming is the word of God. He's brought them. He's brought us God's holy word. God's special revelation. He has not left himself unknown to us. He's revealed himself through his word in Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, the living word of God. And so he's coming to a world which thinks it can control Jesus, but the very names given to Jesus here show that Jesus controls the world. He's coming again in the clouds to churches and to theologians and philosophers who've written books about him, made pronouncements about him, but they don't know him in the depths with which he is known in heaven. For even his most intimate names, we do not know. But he's coming. He's coming to judge. He's coming to a world that has long ago given up any idea of judgment. A world that often says, well, he's never coming For 2,000 years now, it's said he's coming. No, he is coming, says John. He is faithful and true. He will fulfill all his promises. You see, all these names sprinkled in this passage are a confirmation that when he comes again, all that the Bible says about his second coming will coincide with who he is Faithful and true, word of God, king of kings, lord of lords. And now what we learn from this practically is that you and I are to use these names of Christ the same way. We're to bring these names forward in prayer. And according to the needs of our prayer, we're to to draw on those names as they come to our remembrance. And it's by these names we are to live. It's through these names and titles that we rest our hopes and our prospects of our Lord's return. And so as we think of judgment, as we think of the climax of history on this last Sabbath of this year, our hearts must rest and our faith must be found in the names and titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you worried about the future? Well, he's the faithful and true one who's helped you all the way until today, isn't he? So you trust him. Proverbs 18 verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. 
don't know if you've ever thought about that. We're not just taking refuge to Christ, but when we, when we really plead his names by faith, we're running into his names, just like you would come into a sanctuary and worship him. You run into those names, and you worship him, and you rely upon him, and you cast your hope upon those names. Because he's faithful and true in every one of those 280 titles given to him in the Bible. That reminds me of that well-known story of an old Scottish woman. You perhaps have heard this. She was on her deathbed. She was full of glory, full of assurance, full of joy and peace. And her minister came to see her. And those were the days when it was common for ministers to examine those on deathbeds to make sure they're resting on solid foundations. And he questioned her where her soul was resting. And she said, I'm resting on Christ's good name. And he asked her what that meant, and this is what she said. If I should awake in eternity to find myself among the lost, the Lord would lose more than I would, for all that I would lose would be my immortal soul, but he would have lost his good name. You see, that's the way to take refuge into the names, to plead his name, to plead his name in every area of our lives, personally, in our families, in our church, in, in our nation. Lord, what wilt thou do with thy great name if I perish? Or if this nation perishes, or this, this church goes awry, or my family uh, disintegrates and, 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 and abandons truth. We, we plead his name. We don't run from his name because he's holy and majestic, which he is, but we run to his name and we cast ourselves upon mercy. That's the way to use the names of God. We come to his names like a strong tower, remembering that his names are who he is and that he is his names. And the two are one. Every name is Christ himself, God himself. And so there's this majestic glorious, faithful and true, King of kings, word of God, one who's above all names, who's coming to judge the living and the dead on the great day. And the question then comes to us, are we ready to meet him? Are you running to him or running from him? Are you running into his names like a strong tower, or are you turning away and trying to use him without trying to find salvation in him? But in these verses, 11 to 16, there's not only lots of instruction from the names and titles of Christ, but also from his appearance. You notice he appears on a white horse. We're told in verses 11 forward, his eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And so we're told here that when Jesus comes, he doesn't only adorn himself with great names and titles, but he also has a majestic appearance. He's coming to judge and to make war. And we need to remind ourselves of that in our day in which so many pulpits only proclaim a Jesus who's meek and mild, that there is a, yes, there's a kindness about Christ that's unsurpassed, but there's also a severity about Christ with regard to unrepentant sin that is unsurpassed. There's a holiness, a justice, a firmness, a strength about Jesus. He's the strong one. He's the conqueror. He'll conquer his enemies. He'll conquer his friends. He comes riding on a white horse. And a horse, a white horse is symbolic, of course. It's symbolic of the old emperors who, when they gained victory in the battlefields in Bible times, they would... They would uh, select a white charger and they'd come home and they'd ride through the gates of the city on a pure white charger. It meant victory. 
A glorious return of the king, a glorious return of the emperor in victory. Well, that's what John is talking about here. This is not only talking about who Jesus is, but also about what he's going to do. He's a horse. He's sitting on the horse as a symbol of power and victory and speed. And so he's pictured as a powerful, victorious king. Also, the picture of whiteness in Revelation, we've seen that several times, depicts victory. But a horse is also fast. And so you get all these images coming together, so common in the book of Revelation, picturing Jesus now as a speedy winner, never a loser, always a victorious conqueror, king of kings, lord of lords. He's coming as a speedy, victorious conqueror. He's the most exalted, the superlative Lord and King, the greatest there ever was, the sovereign of all time and eternity. He's coming on the clouds. He's coming with authority and power and dominion and victory. Now, there's something tremendously encouraging about that for for believers and for, really, for sinners because so many So many pulpits today will proclaim something like this. Well, it's all up to you now. You must decide. It's up up to you whether you're going to be saved or not. But the Christ of Scripture, you see, is always riding a white horse. He's always victorious. He always wins. That's the point. He's almighty. He comes conquering to conquer. He can conquer you. He can conquer anyone. He conquers even in the most depressing, sad, discouraging moments, even in his own life. When Satan thought he almost had him, had defeated Christ on on Calvary, at the very same time, Christ is conquering Satan. In his death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, says Hebrews 2.15. A poet put it this way, though two had wounds, there conquered one, and Jesus is his name. The point is this, through weakness, through sorrow, through affliction, through trial, as well as through good times and prosperous joys, not just in 2013, but throughout the entire lives of his elect, Jesus Christ is their conqueror. This is the picture of Christ riding out now, not only on the judgment day, but even now among the nations, on his white horse with his gospel sword, full of power, conquering his subjects swiftly. His vesture dipped in blood. He conquers through his bloody atonement. He conquers with his mighty strength. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that if we are true believers, we are with him. Look at verse 14. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are these armies? Well, that's been debated. Some say it's the angels because sometimes they're pictured as being clothed with whiteness of purity. And the church on earth is ministered to by angels more than we are often aware of, no doubt. Now, that may be true. But the heavenly army consists of two components. Not just the angels, also the saints. The saints not just in heaven, but also the saints anticipatory of heaven. Not just triumphant, but also militant here on earth. If you compare in this chapter, verse 14... Back to verse 8, as we saw last time. You will see that John probably has in mind primarily the saints here. They were granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteousness of the saints. Here already, here and now, the bride of Christ, you see, is, is adorned, as it were, with the righteousness of saints. Once perfectly, yes, but here in principle already. And so the armies also include the soldiers of Jesus Christ who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
And John in his vision, see, you see, sees that they're all mounted on horses behind the rider of the white horse. They're all following their king. You get the picture, don't you? It's a picture of Christ riding with his church, the church militant. It's a picture of the triumph and success of the gospel throughout the world. A poet put it this way, fly abroad, thou mighty gospel, win and conquer, never cease. May thy lasting wide dominion multiply and still increase. Sway thy scepter, Savior, all the world around. You see, this gospel must be preached to every nation. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean that a missionary has to go to every nation and sort of, uh, well, spend a few weeks there and stick a few dozen tracts into people's pockets. No, no. This is not just an intellectual acquaintance with the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew, I'll bring the gospel to every nation. He means in truth. He means a numberless multitude will fall to the gospel. Kingdoms and civilizations in every strata of society and every area of life will come under the sovereign sway of King Jesus. That's what we mean. That's what John means. Even now, even now, you see, far more are bending the knee to King Jesus than we're aware of. You go to Europe today, it's very depressing. Less than 10% of people attend church. America, more encouraging, 40, 50%. But there's so much nominal Christendom. But many other places in the world, Christ is riding this white horse powerfully. In China today, thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are coming to know the Lord. All over Africa as well. Will there be a time soon when it can be said that the continent of Africa and the vast people of China have fallen to Christ? See, on his head, on his head, John says, are many crowns. He's not just referring to the golden crown of heaven or the iron crown of hell or the beautiful crown of creation or the remarkable crown of providence. No doubt all these are included. But he's especially saying he's king of king and lord of lords, referring to the crown of grace, saving grace to sinners all over the world. And that began already back in Revelation 6. Remember, it says he had one crown on his head. He was going out to save sinners. But now he's coming in the final days, coming again in the clouds, and he's got many crowns on his head. The crown of Korea and Ethiopia and Brazil and China and many other places are crowns on his head. The whole world belongs to him. Oh, that the whole world would fall before him. That's John's passion. He's a mighty conqueror. The greatest power in the world this morning, congregation, is the power of the gospel. The greatest force in all human history is the force of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why men sent out from the seminary go to, to places all around the world. That's why Dr. DeVries is in South Africa today. We take comfort from this. This spurs us to our evangelism. This gives us hope. If the, if the rider on the white horse was not there with the sword girt and his name was not faithful and true and he was not a mighty conqueror, there'd be no need for a seminary or seminaries. No need for the spread of the gospel. But this is what gets us excited, should get us excited about training men for the ministry, whether it's at PRTS or Macania or wherever around the globe. We ought not to rest until every city and every rural area on this globe has at least one biblical preacher proclaiming the riches of sovereign grace to poor sinners. Last week we saw that Christmas morning, this may well have been the most depressing year this country has ever known. But you see, here's our hope. Our hope is not put in political leaders 
so much as it's put in faithful ministers preaching the gospel, combined with the Holy Spirit blessing that gospel, so that wherever it goes, God's word, as he has promised, does not return to him void. He's faithful and true. Oh, Lord Jesus, ride on swiftly. Let that be our cry. Ride on on thy white horse with the armies of thy servants behind thee, on their horses, proclaiming the great and glorious name, and bringing sinners from all around the globe to bend the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Victory. That's the message here. Victory over the world. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory over hell. Victory over every believer gathered in this place this morning. Oh, make me too, may it be your cry, a subject of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Spurgeon penned these words, O sovereign grace, my heart subdue. I will be led in triumph to a willing captive to my Lord to sing the triumphs of his word. But maybe you say, that all sounds terribly optimistic, but the Bible tells me that there won't be that much hope in the end times. Well, of course, there's some truth In Jesus' statement, will I find faith on the earth? There's certain places that will be very dark, no doubt. But there's also other texts in the Bible that seem to speak of a great time of revival near the end. How do you bring the two together? Well, probably this way, that the godly will become more godly and the ungodly will become more ungodly. And one candlestick in one area will be removed to another But the beautiful thing is, you see, that when Jesus comes, it's not saying that all over the earth there'll be nowhere where there's faith. He rides with many crowns, says John, with the armies of heaven. And when he comes again, there'll be a multitude no man can number. What a comfort this is. But also what a warning it is. If you're not a true believer here today, you're in deep trouble because he's coming on his white horse. You're living a life which, if it's not turned around, will end in defeat and confusion and damnation at the feet of him who rides on the white horse. How will you face him? You're living on the wrong side. You're living on the losing side. You simply can never win in life when you're on the wrong side of this victorious king. And too often you think you can do what you want with him. You can keep him at arm's length, but he's coming. He's coming. And you won't be able to keep him at arm's length anymore. You won't be able to say anymore, I'll seek him later. It'll be too late. He's coming on his white charger. He's a conqueror. He's a king. You must either submit unconditionally to him or you must be destroyed by him. There's no third way. Our text says there's a sharp sword in his mouth. Unless you fall beneath that sword in repentance and faith... By the Holy Spirit's grace, that sword will fall upon you in judgment. Are you ready for the king? And if you've heard the gospel all your life, the sword will be even sharper. Because the gospel is at the same time a savior of life unto life to those who believe and a savior of death unto death to those who won't believe. For 52 Sundays, in 2013, you've heard this gospel again. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, you've probably heard more than 100 gospel messages this year alone. Have you bent your knee before the King of Kings?
Have you cried out, Son of David, have mercy upon me? Or are you still trying to push away the tremendous, tremendous gospel proclamations of him who sits on the white horse? Now, John doesn't only see a king riding on a white horse, but he sees, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun. The whole language, again, depicts a vision. It's like a bright light is coming in, and and, uh, this mammoth figure is uh, in the midst of that light, an angel. It means there's, there's something very important about to happen. The angel has something important to say about the coming of the king, about the king's final battle with his enemies. And notice what he says in 17 and 18. The angel cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls, that is to the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, them that sit on them, all men, free, bond, small, great, and so on. Eat the flesh? What is this all about? Well, of course, it's again symbolism as we've seen all throughout Revelation. And once again, as we've seen all throughout this book, you've got to go back to the Old Testament and pick up on the imagery. Where in the Old Testament, that's the first question you have to ask when you read this, where in the Old Testament does it speak about birds eating flesh? And there are several areas, but there are two that are particular appropriate for this context here. The first is 1 Samuel 17. You remember Goliath, boys and girls, the champion of the Philistines, how he arrogantly defies the enemies of God. He, and then there was David, who came with a sling and, and five stones. Little David from the country with a ruddy complexion, like like a boy, a young country boy, who's not even in Saul's army. A boy who can't even wear the armor put on him. It's too heavy. He can't walk in it. He's falling over. He's too young, too slender. He throws away the armor, takes up a sling and five stones from the brook. He goes out to meet the giant, and he says to Goliath, this day I'm going to give your flesh unto the fowls of the air that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. Well, there's your meaning of the symbolism here. That's the message of the angel standing in the sun. Now, picture yourself as a first century believer in John's day. You're being persecuted by the big Goliaths of this world. You're being thrown in jail, or your friends are, or your pastors are. Some of you are being martyred. It's exactly a David and Goliath situation. There was this giant Rome defying the church, defying Christ, arrogantly standing there astride the world, this mighty Roman Empire, and this little handful of persecuted Christians. And yet, we're told in the first centuries of of church history, this little band of persecuted Christians overturned the world, turned the world upside down. How did they do it? with the stones of the gospel. They didn't do it with the mighty powers of this world. They didn't adopt the methods of this world to win the world. They preached a simple message about a crucified Messiah. And the Holy Spirit took that message, like the stone that David slung, and he brought it to the hearts of people and slew people spiritually so that they died to their own righteousness and lived unto Jesus Christ. And Goliaths, Goliaths all over the world came tumbling down and the Roman Empire was overturned. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God, here it comes, by the foolishness of preaching to save them which believe. Wow. That's amazing truth. What a powerful picture John is painting. What is it that confounds colossal scholarship? What is it that destroys profound learning? It's the message of a man crucified on the Roman gallows in the place of sinners. A little stone from the brook, the world would say. But aimed by the Spirit of God, it brings down through preaching the giants. This is what we need to do, not just in seminaries, but every single believer as an evangelist. We're too prone to think that we've just got little stones, we can't do anything. But one word to a friend, one gospel explanation to a stranger can bring a Goliath down. That's the message. And the unbelieving world will one day be brought down. And its flesh will be eaten like Goliath was. And the second picture here is, of course, the picture of Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 20, where God calls on the birds and the animals to consume the flesh of mighty men, princes, horses, riders, and soldiers. Obviously, John is referring back to that in a very direct way. Simon Kistemacher says in his commentary on this, the birds of prey who have been created to consume carcasses and thus remove unsightly scenes and dreadful smells have been called to be present at the aftermath of Christ's battle against the Antichrist and his followers. This then is the exact fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy against Gog in the land of Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But woe be to us if we belong to the Goliaths and the mighty men of this world and know not the king of kings savingly. Because then on the great day, we're, we're like food for the vultures. What a dreadful contrast then. This God-ordained supper is compared to the wedding supper of the Lamb. A supper of vultures eating flesh compared to believers feasting on the dainties of the king's table. And that leads us then to the third thing that John sees. He sees the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the throne. So the king is not only riding on a white horse, and he's not only overseeing a dreadful supper, but he's also conquering in the final battle. And in verse 19, what John is saying is that all the forces of evil are lined up against him, the rider on the white horse. This is the final battle. This is the end of history. This is the end of the sixth vision. The seventh part of the sixth vision. Remember, each vision, seven parts. We're now at the end of the sixth vision. The seventh vision is going to be Revelation 20 through 22. What happens on the day of judgment? heaven, hell, and so on. But now we're at the very end. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. The battle lines are drawn. The armies face one another. This is Armageddon, referred to back in Revelation 16. And you remember, we, we saw there that the real meaning for Armageddon is it's a symbol of every battle in which when the need is greatest and believers are oppressed, the Lord suddenly reveals his power in the interests of his distressed people and defeats the enemy. And that's what happens here. In fact, we don't even read about the battle in verses 19 through 21. It's just so taken for granted that swiftly the, the rider in the white horse gains the victory over all the enemies. God takes Satan and his minions down and he throws them here into the lake of fire. 
That's what Armageddon is all about. Not, it's not a literal place. It's a battle against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Some people say, well, there's going to be a nuclear holocaust. And then they talk about Armageddon today, and they talk about uh, needing protection and supplies of food in their basement or, or something to, to, to help them in case there's a nuclear bomb or some bomb shelter that they have to go into. But you see, that's not what this is talking about. Armageddon. Is something much more spiritual than that. The real question is indeed, will you survive Armageddon? But then you need to understand what Armageddon is. And Paul speaks of that in 2 Thessalonians 1, where he says, Seeing it's a righteous thing which God with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the critical issue here is, have you been born again? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to repentance and faith? He's coming on the white horse. He's coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you, and you're not saved when he comes, his crown of iron, his rod of iron will trod you underfoot. The winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God will be your portion. So that's what Revelation 19 is all about. The battle, the battle's over in a flash. It's scarily mentioned. With a breath of his mouth, we're told, Christ defeats all his enemies upon his glorious return. 2 Thessalonians 2 says his very presence vanquishes his enemies. No one can stand before the great rider on the white horse. So we're told in verses 19 and 20 in our text that the beast from the sea and the beast from the land and the false prophet, remember those are the forces of anti-Christian persecution, anti-Christian religion, anti-Christian thinking. They're all thrown into the lake of fire. And their followers are slain and thrown in after them. And then the next chapters, the seventh final vision, John tells us in more detail what that will be like, both in hell as well as for believers in heaven. But here, this lake he refers to is a vast area of fire that burns ceasingly with a nauseating smell of sulfur. And the implication here, which will be confirmed in next chapter, is that this, it's impossible to ever leave this burning pool. It will be an everlasting pain for those who refuse to bend the knee before the king of kings in this life. And their lot will be to be consigned to hell forever. And so you have this incredible dichotomy in Revelation 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb and the dreadful supper of the Lord. Christ triumphing together with his followers in perfection, triumphing completely, and Satan's defeat with his followers, horrific and complete. And it all leaves us with just one question. Are you, am I, a follower of the Lamb or a follower of the beast? Are we on the winning side or on the losing side? Have we obeyed the gospel that calls us to repentance and faith or are we obeying the world that calls us to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life? Have you been born again? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Is your only trust for salvation in him alone as Savior? 
And is that all a fruit of that king whom God has exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and to give forgiveness of sins? It's all available in him. He's willing to give it. Or do you say, I, I will go on rejecting. Rejecting the overtures of the Lamb of God and the rider and the white horse. That's tragic, my friend. It's tragic. Please remember, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God outside of Jesus Christ. So if you were to die tonight, which supper would you partake of eternally? The wedding supper of the Lamb or the dreadful supper of God? And if you're headed for that dreadful supper right now, I ask you, what are you going to do about this? Where are you going to go? And what are you going to say to the King of Kings when he comes on his white horse? And you won't have one answer to a thousand questions. Repent while it is still the day of grace. Before not just this year has passed, but before your life has passed. Amen. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for the gospel and the rider on the white horse, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Please, Lord, help us to bend the knee here voluntarily being made willing by thy Holy Spirit before we will be compelled to bend the knee hereafter when it is forever too late. O oh God, graciously conquer us. Subdue us that we may die to our own righteousness and live unto Christ. Wash us clean of every sin. Receive us graciously. Let the gospel ring true from him who is faithful and true in our hearts and in our lives. And may the aroma of the great rider of the white horse be found on us and that we may be little riders on littler horses, following him, proclaiming his name wherever we go, speaking well of him, knowing that he is crowned with many crowns and has more crowns together more elect to save. Oh, help us, Lord, then to go on casting thy bread upon the waters, knowing that we shall find fruit after many days. May our entire lives be of an evangelistic bent, and may thou use us and bless us in thy mercy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.